With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. All right, we are live. This is episode 64 of the Team House. I'm Jack Murphy here with co-host Dave Park over in this general vicinity. <laughs> we are on with our guests for tonight. They are uh, former special operations trauma surgeon Jeff Wilson and submarine officer Brian Andrews. Together, they are the authors of the Tier 1 series, which I actually have them right back here. I should have done this before. Uh, you know, if you reverse these things, they go better, but we do this show live, so uh, this is part of the allure. Authors of the Tier 1 series right here. They have a new book out called Collateral. We'll talk about that a little bit as well. But these guys have a, a, a wide breadth uh, of experience, uh, especially both of them together as, as co-authors interesting individuals so guys thank you so much for joining us on the show really appreciate you coming on tonight oh man we love we love talking to you jack and david thanks for having us man good to be okay. back and i would like to point out that i am actually below the uh operator you know i'm like the submarine guy you know stuck submerged in so bottom. many ways <laughs> yeah submerged. i'm used to it so many ways bro <laughs> and I, I would point out, I, I was speaking before we went live to you two a little bit, um, that this is the second time we've had you on here. I think our first repeat guests. I mean, we have so many people on the show who are Ron. such fascinating people. I want to have them on again yeah. at some point. Ron Moeller. But, yes, yes, Ron's been on twice. Um, so you guys are the second ones to be a, a, a repeat performance um, and I'm very glad that you did. The first one was actually episode 19, way back when we didn't have any sort of set. Our audio and video was iffy at best. Dave and I were like kind of blindly pawing our way through this whole thing, trying to figure it out. And here we are, episode 64. I'd like to think we came a long way. Yeah, but maybe we're going to wish it was back at 19 when it was just like crazy and there was a couple of drinks and a padded room and... There's, I think your daughter was there. Still, like, it was awesome. Yeah, there's yeah. still a couple drinks. Yeah, Plus, my daughter was here last episode buzzing my hair off with, uh, with this guy. Plus, it was pre-COVID, and uh, you, can't, yeah. you can't say enough about it. Yeah, that changes everything. Yes. They were wild and cra crazy times. I mean, four grown men in a room doing a, doing a show. That's, uh, like, now you would not even conceive of that. De Blasio would come in here and write us all citations. <laughs> Oh, but seriously, I hope that um, 
you know, when this whole thing is over, that we can have you guys come back in studio on your next uh, trip through the city, whenever you're doing a book tour or whatever else it is. Uh, it would be great. But in the meantime, we're doing things remotely. It's all good. We'll, we'll adapt. Well, yeah, we definitely cool. want to be the third time guest. We, <laughs> we want to be first for third time. Okay. Right. We can do that. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> There is some advantages to this. Like when we wrap this up, I can still put my daughters to bed and all that stuff instead of uh, schlepping back to the hotel in New York. Like that was a absolutely. that was a great that was a great night though. We had a good time. It was a really good time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we we've was... had several guests who we got shit blasted with and then packed them into an Uber and sent them on their way. <laughs> yeah. Oh, don't tell them that because. We gave him subway fare. We didn't even give him subway fare. <laughs> no, you, you showed. I think David walked us to the subway. Yeah, I rode the subway that, with that you. That was nice. Oh, that's right. You did. We all rode back into Manhattan together. You had to work or something. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. very considerate. I think I think David had to help Jeff get on. He held your hand, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it was, it's scary getting on and off that. It is. It's a, mind the gap. You really mind the gap. Mind the gap. Oh, well, and the subways are even a little more scarier now. Or adventurous. <laughs> yes, they are. Adventurous, <laughs> depending on your take. I, I should say, Dave, you know, have you talked about this on the air much? Um, yeah, our, the assault, the event. Yeah. Yeah, the, the yeah. viewers know, and we did, like, about a couple weeks out, a month out, something like that, we did a How's Dave Doing Where's Waldo type of Dave thing. got his skull bashed in. Where is he now? Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, you look really good for a man who had his face and skull bashed in. So, I mean, it's pretty impressive. It's yeah. only been, it's been like what? It's been like eight weeks, right? Yeah. Eight or nine weeks? Yeah, it's That's... been, yeah, about nine weeks now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, so. You know, all things considered, you look pretty good for a guy that got beat up. I'm not saying you look good. I'm saying no, for a guy right. that the, the I, shit I that beat out implied. of us, you look pretty good. Yeah, I think that was implied. I mean... I don't look any worse than I did before the event. <laughs> we can confirm that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You're back to baseline. Yes. For what that's worth. Yes. Yeah. I, I had a, a a woman on uh, Twitter actually respond, and she was saying, you know, re reflecting on your experience and saying, yeah, the last time I was in New York City on the MTA, there were all these deranged, crazy people on the subway, and like I would have to jump off of the car and go to another car and stuff like that. And I, I told her, I was like, well. Wait a second. That's like how women respond to me on the MTA anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Deranged psychopaths or not. Are you, what are you trying to tell me here? That's yeah. It's a whole different motivation, Jack. That's not the same I, I, thing. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a creeper. What can I say? <laughs> yeah. Well, it just goes to show you got to keep your, your head up, your eyes open all the time. You know, you, you, I mean, I was complacent. And things happened. So. I don't think you you should take any blame for this on your, <laughs> on your person. I mean, you did nothing wrong. You should be allowed to read a book on the subway without having your head hit by a rock. Well, you're right. You're right. Uh, and also, you know, we have to take personal responsibility for not. Obviously, it wasn't my fault. The yeah. attack wasn't my fault, but also. You know, I should have been more, just more aware. I mean, well, you know. I mean, you spent you spend all those years in the suck and you think you've developed this innate sense of situational awareness and uh, it degrades quick. It, you know what I mean? Like you shouldn't have, well, first of all, you shouldn't have to have that level of essay writing on the MTA and reading a no, book to right. go home, obviously, right. that you do when you're like rolling through Rootba, but Still, I know what you're. I know where you're coming from, David. Right. There's that sense of like what happened to me, like you know, oh, that never would have happened. But 
that's that's not real, man. Right. Like it's, well, the you level know, of SA is not the same on the MTA. It's not supposed to be. Right. If so, you're going to be dead from a heart attack in like five more years. Right. Yeah. And and the thing is, that it's not only that we become complacent. Like uh, we try, we actually we actively try to learn how to become more complacent. So we're not that the dude who sits down in the restaurant and can never ever ever not sit with our back against the wall, right? Because it just gets, an, I don't want to say it gets annoying to the people around you, but when you're in a group of people and there are two booth, you know, two seats where the back's against the wall and people sit down, it's kind of hard to be the guy to go, uh, can you get up? So, yeah. so, you know, it, it's sort of that. I don't want to have my head on the swivel all the time. And like you said, you have a heart attack in five years. Right. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. Well, we're glad you're all right, brother. And that's for sure. Well, thanks. Or at least I don't know about all right. You're at least as you were. I I'm doing well. <laughs> You're as long as you like. You were at episode 19 the last time we were there. Right there, right. you go. Right. That's yeah. all we. That's all we really can hope for. In fairness. Yeah. I want my episode 19 Dave back. <laughs> <laughs> it's too late. So tell us what's new with you guys since episode 19. We have some pretty big news. All right. Jeff, you want to break the news? Let's hear it. Oh, gee, I mean, episode 19, there's like all kinds of news. But um, yeah, so we've got it. We've had a few things going on. We told you about Sons of Valor. It's a spinoff series coming out next year. Spinoff from the Tier 1 series, which we're really excited about. But since we told you about that, we've actually uh, signed two more deals. Uh, one is we're going to be writing Webb Griffin's presidential agent series moving forward, at least uh, for the next book or two. So uh, there's eight books in that series that he wrote. I mean, obviously writing for an iconic military fiction writer like Webb Griffin is a little bit intimidating, but he did write one series called Presidential Agent, which is a post 9-11 terrorism type uh, story. And um, we were invited to to write the, that series moving forward. So we're really excited about that. Uh, it's been a, intimidating, like I said, but exciting as well. That is exciting. Um, so that's going to come out next year uh, from Putnam, uh, wonderful editor Tom Colgan, uh, who we adore. So that's our one big news. And we got another one, too. You want to tell them about the other one? Yeah. So everything it was sort of a, you know, in this business, we always talk about it's feast or famine. So you have to take advantage of all these opportunities when they come up. And, and for us, we're very blessed because a lot of these opportunities happen right before uh, COVID. So we had been, you know, when we were in New York, actually, and we saw you guys, we were talking about Webb Griffin with um, Tom Colgan at that, at that time. But we also were pursuing something else that's pretty uh, special to us. And, 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 and uh, we, hadn't, we hadn't signed the deal at the time we saw you guys. We didn't talk about it then. But um, we signed a deal with Tyndall House. It's uh, going to be a three, three, three books, at least initially. We'll see how it goes. But um, it's called the Shepherd Series. And what we're doing there is uh, it's – it's our special op sort of covert operations fiction that we do so well, but also we have a faith-based element. There's a little supernatural activity going on in there. So it's going to be really, really fun for us because we get to sort of branch out into stuff where we get mm -hmm. to not have to worry about, uh, you know, everything being perfectly accurate and play around with some interesting characters that we couldn't put in, you know, tier one or, or the other series. Yeah. It's really like exciting. But Jack, you can appreciate this. Um, that means we're doing four books a year for the next few years. So, you know, you, you sign all these deals and you're like, this is awesome. And then you look at your calendar and you're like, 
what have I, what have I done? Yeah, you two are psychopaths. <laughs> that's that's what happened there. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. yeah, very exciting. We're having, we're definitely having a good few years. So that's fantastic. And that the uh, both both those great news and the book with the uh, sort of the military and covert ops with the supernatural sounds really fun. Yeah, it's it's fun to do something a little more speculative. You know, where you can use your imagination a little bit more. I mean, we love the tier one. We love doing the research. We love staying up on geopolitics. You know, we follow you, Jack. That's how we get all our ideas. We read all your articles, but um, that's fun. It's, and it's natural because it's an area of interest, but being able to, as a writer, you know, being able to sort of separate yourself from that tether a little bit and just go wild with your imagination is fun too. So it's, it's going to be exciting to be able to feed both those sides of your brain. I think. Yeah. To, we'll, we'll to, to not be constrained by the rules of reality. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I used to write a lot of uh, supernatural fiction in the day. I, I actually started out. My first three books were just supernatural thrillers, like almost straight up horror thrillers. And I like what we do now better, but there is an incredible freedom of just sitting and there's no rules. It's like you create your own universe from scratch and no one can tell you what to do. And there's no one going to write a review that says, well, that's not how it happened. It's like, right. how do you, know? I invented that damn world. Right. You don't know how it happened. Right. So, yeah. yeah. The, the, the ultimate fear, I think, well, you tell me what you think, but you know, you're writing something like the tier one series or similar type of thriller. What happens if real world events just screw you over in like the conflict you're writing about just completely takes a, a left turn and, you know, the, the, by the time the book comes out, it's not really uh, relevant or it doesn't feel as relevant as you thought it did. Oh, yeah. You, you worry about that all the time. We've been really lucky. I mean, I think that, you know, if you've been following us, it, it looks like we're these genius prescient people. We're not. I mean, I'll speak mostly for Brian here. No, no. <laughs> But we have been really lucky that we've been, and, I, and it, it's, it's a combination of luck and just being sort of tuned in. You know how it is. You just get, you're an addict to all the geopolitics and you're following it and you're speculating. And I mean, if you follow it enough, um, just especially in the journalism business, eventually you sort of fill in the gaps before they're right, public. Right. And, and so it's, it's not that you're a genius. It's just that, you know, there's a little bit of luck and there's a little bit of, you know, things move in the directions that they obviously move. But we've been lucky so far. But you're right. You do worry about that because, as you know, that timeline from a book conception to it sitting on the shelf is it's not 90 days. Like <laughs> these things happen faster and faster and faster in our world. So, yeah, we got lucky yeah. with the Russia thing. It heated up perfectly for us. Well, and, and I think COVID's a perfect example of that. We were asked the other day, we were doing a virtual event and one of our fans said, hey, are you guys going to you know, sort of overtly address COVID or your character's going to be wearing masks or are they going to talk about the pandemic? You know, and it's funny because Jeff and I had actually talked about that and we said, you know what, because we are world building and our worlds are, they're analogous to this world, but they're not exactly the same. Right. We feel like the, the people that are reading our books, they're looking for entertainment. They're looking for an escape. Right. Do they really want to read about our characters wearing masks and having to deal with pandemic? You know, that's a different genre of fiction, I think. So, we sort of made the strategic decision that, hey, you know, this is not happening in our universe, or if it is, you know, it's it's on a smaller scale. It's happening in the background or happened in the past. It's not really going to drive our narrative because right. that's not the story that we wanted to tell. And it's not that it's not important. It's not that we're trying to minimize it. It's simply that, you know, in our universe, because we can create it, we have that we have that luxury. 
Yeah. Well, let's be honest. If you just came back from the grocery store with your mask and your gloves and spraying down your groceries and all that, last thing you want to do is escape from that by reading yeah. a book about a guy that's spraying his stuff and right. putting on a mask, right? Like, just get me away from that for a little while and let me do something else. Right. And it feels like it would also be very cumbersome to add every single element to that and then try to rewrite or to write in how people interact, the engagements, everything else like that. Yeah, well, and then there's also that timeline we just talked about, right? right? By the time we write that and it gets edited and it gets on the bookshelves, people are going to be like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Right. Well, that's not what we're looking for, right? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you hope that people will still be reading the book 10 years from now. And, and right. if they do, uh, that that's something that will probably seem especially dated, like, whoa, wow, yeah. like blast from the past. Remember when we all had to wear masks? Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. You, know, you guys, so. uh, you keep up on you know, international affairs and, and, you know, politics and things like that. What we have people in our audience that are really into that kind of stuff. What are some of your favorite sources and go-to sources to avoid sort of the, you know, the partisan stuff, the anything like that, but how do you guys get your information? I mean, I think that we start with, um, like Brookings Institute is always putting out, uh, you know, open source information. So open source information is, is really where we start. So we like to look at the, the analysts who are actually spending, getting paid to spend time looking at a particular space. So um, I think for us, like Brookings, Defense One, uh, there's all kinds of defense blogs out there now. And these guys are pretty hungry and they, they, they jump on stories fast. So we like to follow uh, the defense blogs and, and, and the institutes that are, you know, sort of writing, writing papers that the policymakers are looking at because the policymakers, um, you know, they got to get their information from somewhere. Mm -hmm. So look at the sources that the policymakers are using. And that's a great source for us for uh, coming up with what the policymakers in our fictional universe are doing. Well, and, and Jack, you, you and David can both appreciate this. You do that enough, then you're just watching the news and you're filling in the gaps. You know what I'm saying? Like you've read enough stuff that when you see that little tidbit on the news that the people that aren't tuned in, it's just a little snippet that means nothing. You're like, oh, you know what that probably really was. And you do that little thing in your head. I'm not saying you're always right, mm -hmm. but for a fiction writer, it doesn't matter if you're right. It's still an idea. Like we tied in, in um, not Red Spectre, but in, uh, was it Red Spectre where we had the gas? Uh, the, yeah, Nord Stream 2. Nord yeah, the Nord Stream 2. Like we tied that in and, uh, you know, again, lucky, prescient, whatever it was. But I mean, you see that little tidbit and it means nothing to you if you're not in that space or if you're not writing in that space. But those little things that you heard about what was going on in the Balkans and stuff like that, for us, it was like, that's a great spark for where to go next. And, you know, those little things sort of tie together and you fill in the gaps in, in the mainstream news just because you're exposed to it all the time. Fascinating. And, um, you know, before we get more into this, I, I know we covered this really in detail in, epi in episode 19. But would you guys tell us a bit about your backgrounds? I, for the viewers who have not yet watched episode 19 and plan on going back and watching it, um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, kind of give us, who are you guys? Is that you waiting for me? Okay, all right. Well, uh, I'm on the bottom. So no, that's I, good. Right, right. I, I, I talk I, second. So, um, you know, that's people, people ask me about my background and it's how I prove I'm a fiction writer. Cause it sounds like I'm making it all up cause I've done two, but I've done, I've done a lot of things. You know, my growing up, my dad was like, look, dude, 
what you want to do is find that job where they're going to pay you to do something that you would pay to do. And I just never gave up that struggle. And so as a result, my mom says, I can't keep a job. So I've been, you know, I've been a pilot and I was, uh, I worked for another branch of the government for a long time. I've done, I've been a diving and so I've been all kinds of crazy stuff. But in terms of my military career, I was in the Navy. I was going to be a fighter pilot. I got in a motorcycle accident and left. I went through uh, flew civilian aircraft for a number of years and then joined another uh, agency within the federal government. Did that for a couple of years and um, had some up close violence of action kind of experiences and went, you know, this was not after 9-11. This was like, you know, and I'm like, eh, you know, maybe I want to find a life of peace. So I went to medical school with a goal of becoming a surgeon and actually wanted to become an academic vascular surgeon. I wanted to be in a teaching hospital. I wanted to do research. When I was in training, I wrote a bunch of papers. And then, uh, like happened to so many people in, in our generation, a um, bunch of assholes crashed some planes into some towers and the Pentagon and all this. And it just, you know, something snapped. I, it just pissed me off. And so I was a, a naval reservist at the time. I transferred back to active duty and um, reported to Portsmouth Naval Medical Center, deployed six months later with the Marines as a Frist team surgeon. And while I was downrange, I ran into some people I knew from another life. And uh, when I came home, I had a little conversation with some folks in a bar one night. And then I was uh, working at a East Coast based SEAL team doing some other stuff. So uh, most of my time in the military was spent in special warfare and support role as a combat surgeon and developing uh, austere environment support systems um, to do things like that. And then after that, I spent a little time with a joint task force and did some of that crazy stuff. So kind of all over the map for me, it's a little schizophrenic. You, you got to tell me how that works, Jeff, because I, I know people are going to ask me when you're, you're at a bar having like scotches and I just picture some guy smoking a cigarette, like, like how do you get recruited for a job like that? Yeah. So, well, I mean, the, that's where you meet. Like I, I wasn't like sitting in a bar and they came up and said, Hey bro, you want to chat? It was, <laughs> it was more like they, I would, I'd been with some guys. A special I was team. in Iraq. There was a, there was this <laughs> thing going on. And they pulled me to do something with them, um, and I did. And when I got home, I get this call and sort of a cryptic call. He's like, hey, uh, it's so-and-so. You remember that conversation we had on the roof? When we talked about that stuff that you could maybe do. And like, would you really want to do that? I was like, oh, yeah. He's like, well, meet us at so-and-so you know, tomorrow night at 930. <laughs> Who is this? <laughs> and so we went and we had a few drinks, and we – batted something around and then you know i don't want to make it sound like stupid like after that there was a formal screening process i was at the command i met with the cso i mean we did all the normal stuff it wasn't some weird back alley smoke filled <laughs> room but it did start that way and it was a little creepy it was like you know i, I kept waiting for someone to come out and say no we're just kidding man we, we got you um but yeah that was how it started we sat down in a bar and sat in a back booth and had a conversation and I guess they liked what we talked about. And so it took it from there. And as a surgeon in, in general, in, in that type of environment, were you like at the mass unit safely behind friendly wire all the time? No, it wasn't that kind of unit. <laughs> so I, had, I did that with the Marines. And even then, you know, the Frisk, the Frisk team was a little bit more like what mash was supposed to be in the day. Right. So uh, the Frisk teams were designed to move right up to the forward edge of the battlefield. I, we did one real operation as a Frist team. Most of our stuff was in garrison, but the one real thing we did 
during uh, Operation Dagger was we went out and set up right there uh, near Fallujah, outside of Fallujah, near uh, Awadi Tartar, and we set up something real close to the forward edge. And that was sort of what we did. But with this unit, it was, you know, this is very, very small team stuff going into denied areas. If you're going to send six guys and one of them is going to, you know, be there for medical, then everyone's going to have to carry some weight. So it was, it wasn't like that. It was uh, going out there and, and doing stuff, but yeah, that's, that's about probably all we should say. Fair enough. And Brian, please. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Yeah, no, I was uh, at at college and and uh, these guys showed up and they they put a black bag over my head <laughs> and they dragged me off and the next thing i know i wake up on a submarine this was your and fraternity, i'm like you know it. what the hell is this and they said you know we're having trouble getting people to go into this community <laughs> and uh this is how we do it now so uh you're here we're underway uh they handed me a call card and i had to get started <laughs> and that's really just how it worked out for me you know and i mean I'm not bitter. I mean, I'm not bitter. But, uh, if you could do this with a, with a different accent, a twitch in your eye, it would be a way better story. <laughs> Somebody's got to do it, right? Somebody's got to say one of the Yeah, no, but I was a submarine officer. So um, it is, a, it is a, a little bit of a funny story. So I was at Vanderbilt. Um, one nice thing about the Navy, I was a Navy ROTC guy. I had a scholarship. And one of the nice things about the I had an Air Force scholarship option, and, and they told me I had to be a physics major. And I remember asking the Colonel, well, if I'm a physics major, what, what are you going to have me work on? He's like, you're going to work on lasers. I was like, you mean like, pew, pew, like lasers from Star Wars? He's like, yeah, well, we haven't made those yet, but we'd, we'd like to make those. <laughs> I was like, he didn't okay, say lasers. Okay. But, uh, yeah, lasers, sharks with lasers. <laughs> um, and then when I met with the, the Navy guy, he said, oh, you – you can you can be in any major that you want. I said, all right. Well, I think I'll, I think I'll do Navy. So I, I show up at the I show up at um, university, and uh, I see all these really all the best looking girls are going in this one building, Wilson Hall. And I said, I wonder what what's Wilson Hall? That's the psychology building. So I, naturally, I became a psychology major because of course. That's, that's where all the, the best looking women were were going to class. So I. I say that tongue in cheek. It's not actually true. I was interested in, in psychology, but I was a psychology major and, and my interest was going into, um, I wanted to go to Navy intelligence and, uh, my senior year, they, um, they closed all the restricted line communities, which means you couldn't go into JAG and medical and crypto and intelligence. Those were all closed. I remember looking at my, uh, you know, my faculty advisor and I was like, well, what the hell am I going to do now? Like, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what I've been planning to do for 
for three years. And he's like, well, you're going to have to pick one of the unrestricted line communities. I mean, you have to go surface or Marines or Naval Special Warfare or uh, subs. So I said, I, I had been on my midshipman cruises and stuff. And I said, well, I guess I'm going to go uh, subs. That sounds the most interesting. You know, Hunt for Red October had been out. I'd seen that movie. I'd seen Crimson Tide. Look, looked pretty cool. And he laughed in my face. <laughs> he just laughed in my face. And I said, what are you laughing at? He's like, you can't, you can't go subs. And I said, why not? He's like, well, because you, you didn't take any of the engineering classes. He's like, you're not an engineer. These are nuclear engineers, okay? You have to be a nuclear engineer to go on the submarine. And I said, well, how hard can it be? I got A's and physics and calculus. He's, he laughed again. He's like, pretty freaking hard. <laughs> and, uh, so I said, well, I'm going to try. And um, so they, they, you know, they use a Navy turn. They gouged me up. So they got some tutors and they got people and they're like, they're trying to teach me electrical engineering. Remember, this is my senior year of the year. I'm supposed to be partying. And I'm taking the, you know, after hours at electrical engineering and material science and thermodynamics. And they're trying to teach me all this stuff. And I, I was so cocky and stupid. I, I thought I knew it. So I show up, they take, they fly you out to Naval Reactors in Washington, D.C. It is Ryan here. And I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And the guys that actually test you are the actual nuclear engineers, the people who, you know, worked at Bettis and General Electric and the guys that, you know, if you're going in for your thermodynamics, you know, exam, this is the guy that actually came up with the thermodynamic cycle for the steam cycle on the submarine. Like, you cannot bullshit this guy. He did all the calculations, right? right? <laughs> the guy who's asking you about particle physics, like, he designed the full fuel plate for the reactor. He figured out where all the poisons need to be loaded and the geometry to control the nuclear neutron population, all this, right? So I go in there and um, I think I go through all my tests and I think to myself, you know, this is, this was just terrible. There's no way they were right. <laughs> they were right to laugh at me. There's no way that I'm possibly going to, to make it in this program. So, um, you know, a full bird captain comes along and it's all lined up in the hall and he's the admiral's aide. You know, he's the, He's a chief of naval, oper uh, naval reactors aide. And he's going to bring me in there. And, and uh, at the time that I was going for my test with Admiral McKee, and he was a prodigy of Admiral Rickover. I don't know if you guys know Admiral Rickover. He was the father of uh, naval nuclear power. And this guy was quite a character. and He would do all sorts of silly tricks. He, he wanted to test people's, you know, not just their knowledge. He wanted to see how they behaved under pressure. So he'd do things like, he saw like, you know, one of the legs on the chair would be short. So the chair would be tilting and stuff like that. Or he would put sticky stuff on the chair. So they'd sit down and realize that they're <laughs> sticking or he'd, he'd be belligerent or he'd, he'd be facing the wrong way when they would come in all kinds of stories about the things that this guy did. And so he, he sort of had you know, trained Admiral McKee or at least passed on some of that mentality. And I remember when I walked in, he had my, uh, he had my file on his desk 
and it was open. I could see my picture, my service jacket, and I could see, you know, some other stuff. I couldn't quite read it. And he's looking down at it. And he says, uh, I, it felt like an hour. It felt like he made me wait like an hour. It's probably like 30 seconds, but it felt like forever. And uh, he looks down at it, and he finally looks up at me, and he says, what the fuck business do you have wanting to join my nuclear Navy? <laughs> and I remember, like, in that moment, I was like, what business do I have? <laughs> that's, that's the thought that went in my head. But I also realized, you know, they always, we write this sort of stuff in our stories, you know, Jeff and I would talk about like time slowing down. And I think in that moment, time did slow down for me. And I realized that, you know, this is a make or break moment. I have to do something or he's just going to kick me out of his office. And, and that, that switch sort of flipped in my head. And I, I came right back at him. I said, well, you need me in your nuclear Navy. And I screwed up his face and he's like, I need you. What the hell are you talking about? And I said, you don't have anybody like me. I said, you got a whole hallway of engineers and scientists and stuff out there, but I'm the only non-technical dude who's made it through this process who wants to be in your nuclear Navy. And I said, quite frankly, you need somebody like me down there who understands human psychology and the way people think. Because the last thing you need is just a bunch of engineers down there on a war fighting vessel. And uh, I guess that made an impact on him because he let me in. That's amazing. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of how I got into it. Or it's horrifying, Brian, that they let someone like you <laughs> into the nuclear program on freaking Navy submarines with having not a single college class on uh, any of these things you mentioned, electrical engineering, thermodynamics. Or, oh, well, you passed the test. It's like getting a driver's license. Like now you're certified to run a nuclear reactor on a submarine. Is that right, how- right. 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 So, I mean, you got the, that story or the black bag story. You can take your <laughs> well, and I tell you, well, just to wrap this up, though, because he's a little bit humble. What he's not telling you is there's an actual exam before you get to what he just described. And he takes a, you know stacks of book as tall as my kids and crams them into his head in like nine weeks. And because he's got an IQ of a bazillion. He actually scores like in the upper quarter of everyone that took the exam. So it's like him and actual engineers and physicists, and he beat the shit out of half of them and scored so high that he had the opportunity to sit in that in that board. So That's amazing. don't let him don't let him fool you. They didn't. He his test scores were enough that he had all the smarts too. So Brian, what was it that drew you to uh, subsurface? Because I a lot of people men, don't know this being with the men in the sub. Yeah. I bet it's very arduous exactly. duty. It's it's tough. It's challenging, and it's it's a lot of sexy time too, right? It, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, a lot of sexy time and dancing and no sharing cots. Yeah, I didn't have to hot rack, but <laughs> but maybe you want to. Maybe <laughs> yes. When they got out, he would still be in if they would have let him hot rack. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what was it that drew you to that? You know, that when because you have surface, which is kind of, you know, and, yeah. uh, you know, the ships and the other branches. But what was it about subsurface? I mean, I think that the submarine is the closest thing to, you know, it's the most complicated machine ever built by human beings. Um, it's completely self-sustained. It's nuclear power. It operates in the dark. You can't see where you're going. And um, it's the ultimate stealth platform. I mean, you can drive a submarine uh, 12 miles off the coast of another country. They don't know you're there. And if you're a boomer, you've got, you know, Trident missiles, one submarine with all the MIRVs capable of wiping out an entire, the entire Soviet Union or the entire, you know, at the time, Soviet Union or Russia. 
or fast attack, you know, you can sneak up on a battle group, you can sneak up on any, any ship in the ocean. And um, I don't know, I just thought that was really, really, really cool. And, um, you know, now having served on one, I, I think about some of the shit that we did and it still boggles my mind to think that, you know, like I said, you're completely blind. You're navigating basically by geometry. And uh, some of the stuff we did is insane. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Are, are you sure it wasn't the food? <laughs> I have food stories. <laughs> oh, yeah? Give us a food story. Because for those of you who don't know, food on a submarine is top notch. <laughs> Until it runs out. Until <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, there's all kinds of silly things, you know, and, and Jeff and I talk about this. These are some of the, the silly things that you remember, you know, and um, a lot of it has to do with, um, you know, who the chief is and what sort of deals he can get and stuff. So, you know, when we went up to Ketchikan, Alaska, you know, he came, he's coming back with crab legs. And, um, you know, we had this amazing crab leg dinner for the whole crew. You know, he had bought, you know, I don't know, 100 pounds of crab legs. and. You know, that was fantastic and you felt like a king and you know on the other side you know there was the time i'm coming back uh from an attack trainer and you know the guys are loading stores and they got you know the brows lined up and the guys are handing you know food that's how you would load stores is you know you'd have everybody on the brow and then there's a line down to the you know forward escape hatch and they would hand you know just hand over hand pass that stuff down and this is one of those no bullshitter stores so we're coming back from the tech center and I'm walking down the aisle and one of the, one of the guys I knew who's a friend of mine, he's like, Hey, sir. He's like, check it out. Only the best for the boys in blue. And I looked closely and it was a beef tenderloin. It was a beef tenderloin, but stamped on it said rejected us penitentiary system. <laughs> Not good enough for prison, but good enough. For the boys of the Louisville. Yeah. That's right. Brian, I, uh, I, I don't know how much you'd be able to talk about this particular subject, if at all. Um, but I, I recently uh, wrote an article uh, for Yahoo about um, you know deep sea, or not, I shouldn't say deep sea, but undersea espionage, um, a, a covert mission that the CIA was doing at the time in 2008. And by doing that story, writing that story, I came into be acquainted with a lot of former Navy divers and saturation divers, and I learned a lot about undersea espionage done by it, with our submarines. And there's some stuff that's written publicly. Some of those guys have even written uh, personal accounts of their time. But, I mean, I just came to really have so much respect for those guys and what they do because it, uh, everyone thinks about Navy SEALs and Navy SEALs and this and that, and not to take cheap shots at them or anything here. Just to say, I think a lot of people don't understand what those guys, those Navy divers, Navy saturation divers do. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, there's an, a couple boats. They're called the Special Project Boats. And, you know, over the years, they're, um, those, the names of those boats were kept secret. But, you know, Blind Man's Bluff came out, and, and some of that information is out now in public record. Like the USS Archie was a Special Projects boat. And, and now, you know, one of the Sea Wolf class boats is a special project boat, and they do all, all kinds of interesting things. But even submarines like the one that I was on, you know, the, the Louisville was what we called a type A boat, which means that, you know, we were able to do all kinds of different missions. So we could do, um, you know, littoral surveillance. We could do mine laying. We could launch tomahawks. We could do 
Luan Blue, Submarine Chasing, Submarine Following, that sort of stuff. We do battle group escort, uh, uh, battle group escort activities. Um, so it's a pretty versatile platform. And, you know, one of the things that submarines do is they do drive in close to other countries, you know, waters. And you, you're, you are trying to collect intelligence. So you're looking to see, you know, well, what ships are transiting in and out of these ports? You know, what sort of communications are people doing? And most of this activity is being conducted at periscope depth. So you have your, your periscope up and you're listening, hoping that people don't see your periscope. Um, the types of things, like the article that you, that you referenced that you wrote, that type of activity, you know, could be done where a submarine could drive into an area and, and launch SDV. Jeff knows a lot about SDVs. And, um, you know, you'd never even have to come up to periscope depth. You never have to risk being seen because you could deploy people underwater and they could, they could go do those types of activities. Um, it is interesting that you, that you mentioned this, this topic, though, because I just read an article a couple of days ago about, I think it's called the, the Bluefin 1 or Bluefin 2. It's, it's basically a submersibly launched drone. So, you know, like on, on my boat, you know, we had uh, vertical launch tubes. And in those vertical launch tubes, you can load tomahawks. But you can also lo load, you know, any other payload that's designed to fit inside that tube. So what they did in this test is that they loaded a, uh, basically a drone carrier into this tomahawk tube. And I don't know what depth they were at, but they were at some submerged depth. And um, they opened the, the VLS tube. This, this submerged payload comes out. It floats up to the surface. It opens and out pops a drone or a series of drones. So if you think about that, you know, being a former submarine officer, the most dangerous part of my job was getting in real close and personal and having to be at periscope depth, and that's putting 100 people's lives at risk if you get counterdetected. How cool would it be to be able to drive in, you know, close and personal, but not as close and personal as we did, and be able to have a standoff, and now you can put this asset, this disposable asset up that can collect all the same intelligence that you were collecting previously off the periscope. So that's pretty badass. And I think that that's going to change submarine activities. And I think it's going to happen pretty quick. Well, one of the things I came across, and I don't know if you ever heard of this or not, but uh, have you ever heard of upward falling payloads? Mm -mm. There's a concept that DARPA worked on, and I have no idea how far along it's gotten. But the idea is that you have something on the bottom of the ocean um, whatever that payload is, it's something that our government is interested in. You hook something up to it um, that would inflate a bag, whatever whatever it inflates with, it's something that's more buoyant than the water around it, and it fires that payload straight up through the water so that it actually pops up above the surface and could theoretically be caught maybe by a passing aircraft. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. Something that would be cool in a novel, if uh, even if it doesn't work out in reality. Yeah, yeah. Jeff, right remember? I'm writing it down. <laughs> Jeff, do you remember when we what we did in Red Spectre with that tent? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was cool. I don't know where that idea came from. <laughs> would you tell us about it? Oh, was it? Yeah, there, so there was a scene where we're um, we're standing off some. Uh, uh, the the Ember team being supported by some NSW guys, and there's a new generation of these SDVs that have a much uh, longer range, 
um, which is unfortunate for people that have to ride in them because it's horrible being inside of them. But they can now go for like hours and hours at a much higher speed. And so they can go hundreds of miles uh, in these cramped little things. So we had this infill scene where they were going to, they were trying to infill this team into Russia, into Russian, through Russian waters, through this bay in Finland, all the way to this island. But the time that it takes to get there under the stealth of night, which is what they needed just so a fisherman doesn't see the sub in, you know, cause it's so shallow there. They need to do it at night, drop them and go. So by the time they infill it's day. And so they can't conduct their operation until nightfall. So they had this underwater tent. So they deploy, they carry this bag with them. They deploy this tent. It's stanchion to the, to the bottom. It inflates. And it's dry inside. It's got pressurized air. It's got CO2 scrubbers. They can stay in there for up to 12 hours, be dry, be relatively warm, wait for nightfall and infill. But the thing that was cool about it was you still have the same issue, right? Like some fisherman comes by and says, what the hell is that? So they had these series of cameras along the bottom of this platform that are in real time filming as they move the bottom of the water and then projecting that image onto the screens on top of this tent-like structure. So that if you were in the water and you looked down on it, all you'd see is the bottom of the ocean. So yeah, that was fun. I, I forgot about that. That was pretty cool. DARPA, you gotta love DARPA. They can't think of some crazy ass stuff. They, I don't know how do. much of that is out there, but it's cool. And that was something that, you know, we, we had read an article about the, some research divers that had inflated these, it really is an underwater tent. And the idea was to um, prevent, you, to give them a place to decompress or to stay at a particular depth without having to be in their scuba gear because mm -hmm. maybe they're going to want to go back down. So they actually invented these underwater tents. They do exist. And, and when Jeff and I were talking about it, we said, okay, well, we can, I just used the same idea we had from submarine air quality control and how we recycle all the air. So we looked up, you know, okay, yeah, you can buy the same, CO2 cartridges for the scrubbers, aiming cartridges and, and the like. And, and you know, we just fictionalized it. But if you put all those technologies together. I don't think we've ever seen uh, pictures of the new generation of SDVs, if I'm not mistaken, because they're, they're still secret. But uh, I've read that they're completely self-contained. In, in other words, the divers inside them are dry. They're, they're in a, like a self-contained system. Yeah, they have that. They have that also. But the thing that actually is the is really cool, and this is you know, I'm this is comfortable because this is open source. But they also this new generation is configured so that it can deliver divers, it can deliver team guys, seals, whatever. But it also can operate autonomously without uh, crew as a drone. Oh, wow. so it actually it actually fits both of those missions and it's mm -hmm. and they're interchangeable so that that was what i thought in the in the research we did was the coolest about the generation sdvs that we were looking at was that they could do all these things and so they could do very deep stuff for isr that was independent of delivering a combat force but they could also you know deliver combat divers or whatever they needed to do it's pretty cool it's or a very multi-function and that's up a team. that's the future right as we get so specialized the cost of having technology that is for one specific mission yeah, set right. and nothing else is prohibitive like at some point we can't spend a quazillion dollars or whatever the number is because we have all these so you've got to have some you know 
some ability to use these things in multiple aspects. And, and so that's what I, that's what resonated with me was it's really cool that they thought that through that it can do multiple things right. uh, all in one platform. It's really so, neat. And that's all open source. You guys can find that out. When we're talking about STVs, we're talking about uh, short for or the acronym for seal delivery vehicle. It's a submersible vehicle that, uh, you know, uh, seals or, or other unconventional forces will use for for transporting long distances, basically, and, 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 or carrying stuff. But they're, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, they're locking out of a dry dock on the submarine itself. And there's like a whole operation they have to go through for the seals to go up through the the hatch through the dry dock and like it's very i've been told anyway it's kind of sketchy because no any submarine captain is going to be sketchy about this whole concept that you're going to like open this one port the seals are going to go up into the dry dock and then you're going to flood it with water and it's just like a lot of like well they and they have they have both systems yeah you know there's a lot of the stvs the 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 generation of stvs that is most deployed now that's a wet sub so mm -hmm. they don't need to worry about that they got it they swim the guys out and they gotcha. get in and they sit there in the wet and the cold in their dive gear yeah. crammed like this on a little wooden bench for a few hours and uh, because it's so, open and they're not swimming and generating that body heat their wetsuits aren't really doing anything for them yeah so it's even worse right yeah. you're not even generating you're not hydrolyzing any atp to make your own heat yeah and so you're sitting there freezing cold but um but yeah they do have these dry systems now too that's interesting uh, yeah the, the uh please go ahead sorry go ahead no, please. I was just going to say, Jeff and I, when we were doing one of our tier one uh, book tours, we were fortunate enough to go out to Pearl and we got to tour uh, one of the new Virginia class submarines. And there's a different lock-in lock-out system for SDVs than, than they had on the Los Angeles class, which is what I was on. You know, with the Los Angeles class, it's that you use that escape trunk, that multi-purpose escape trunk. And uh, the, the new system is a lot more roomier. It's some thought went into making this a little bit more humane, right? And a little bit more uh, functional. So it was pretty cool when we got to see that. Yeah. I think it was George Hand, wasn't it, who told us a story yeah. about when he, about uh, locking it in or yeah, out yeah. of the he, sub. he was on a, a first group dive team and he got sent out with a SEAL platoon out on a sub. I can't remember which one, him and one other SF guy, and they were doing lockout drills going in and out of the submarine. Yeah. Yeah. That's on a bonus segment of this show for people who support us on Patreon. Only just $1 a month. Just throwing that out there. We'll get you all that <laughs> cool information. Um, guys, tell us about your new book, though, the, the newest book in the Tier 1 series, Collateral. I, let's talk about John Dempsey and Ember. Uh, who are they? Mm -hmm. And, and like, what is this world that we're entering? So the backstory, you know, and we're, I, we're not really in the spoiler alert area now right because we're in book six we're, we're working on book seven for next year but this series got started off under the with uh, the question what would happen if the tier one seal unit got wiped out completely and so that's the premise of the first book there's a, an attack an ambush because inside information has been leaked uh from some of the shady people up in in the government uh, our government for uh reasons uh, that are explained later and this entire the entire Tier one SEAL team is wiped out with a single survivor uh, named Jack Kemper. And uh, he is also presumed dead. And he wakes up on an airplane and his former CSO who has left the Navy, but is now working with one of the spooky joint task forces, offers him the opportunity to join this organization called Ember 
and he will assume a new identity and his job will be initially to hunt down and bring to justice those responsible for killing all of his brothers. So that's sort of how this this story, this series gets started. We write these books in, uh, as we told you last time, it's sort of in a three book, it's sort of a trilogy, right? So each, each uh, idea takes three books to explain. So in the first one, we start with that idea. It turns out that you have the Iranian connection. So we call it our Persian trilogy. Um, those are the false flag operators that bring us to this. And then in book four, we pivoted uh, and Dempsey and his team, which is now much more mature, and they've got a lot of uh, camaraderie and team. They've trained together. They've fought together. And now Dempsey has stayed on, and he's going to continue this work. Uh, by this time, uh, his boss has become the director of national intelligence. And so this is their their private little super secret army that they can use for the high-speed stuff. So uh, Russia is flaming up and uh, starting to poke their nose into stuff. And so they become the false flag operators. And so starting with, um, I guess, American operator and then Red Spectre and uh, culminating in uh, this book, Collateral, we have Russian false flag operations. What's interesting about this that I think will resonate with you guys is that when we did that pivot, one of the questions we asked is, how would that affect an operator who has been working in the Middle East since let's say 2002, right? Uh -huh. You have had this singular kind of enemy that you have been in his sandbox, no pun intended, for the last 15 to 20 years. And now suddenly you're faced with an enemy that is your technological and geopolitical equal. And that would be a tremendous, uh, difficult transition to make, I think, for the average operator that's been in and out of Yemen and Djibouti and Iraq and Afghanistan. And so that was sort of where we were going with this is what would that be like? You know, this is an enemy, not like what these guys have faced before right. 20 years. That's a career, right? So these right. guys have been fighting the same enemy for this period of time. And now uh, they're, they're brought to face this new thing. So that was sort of what we wanted to do in this Russian trilogy, beginning an American operator. And so we have this other organization that is their counterpart, their Ember organization that is hunting and trying to kill them. So Brian, if you want to talk about Collateral, that sort of sets the stage for that trilogy of which Collateral is the third in the third installment. Yeah, I think that was a great setup for, I mean, basically you walked everybody through where we got to with, with Collateral. And Collateral is just like we talked about before, it's us trying to get our crystal ball and look at current geopolitics and, and we always start every every book with a what if question you know and and we you know in book five which you guys read red specter it was all about the baltics and nordstrom too and and you know the fact that energy plays a big role in um military operations and power and projection of power and motives and the like and and we saw all the things that were happening in uh, in the time since we wrote that book we we're looking at well okay um, you know, there's all this messaging that's happening. There's everything that's happening along uh, the Ukrainian eastern border with the DPR. And, you know, w what would happen if, you know, Putin, Putin likes to talk about Nova Russia. You, you hear him mention it all the time. You know, is he just talking about it or is he thinking about it? And we said, well, wh what if our fictional Vladimir Putin you know, who's Petrov in the books, you know, wh what would he do if he wanted to regain that Nova Russia territory? 
what a lot of people don't realize, and you know, it wasn't really talked about a whole lot in the news. You know, they talk about the little green men in Crimea. They talked about the the forced vote, but what nobody really talked about is that why did he want to do this? Why did he want to recapture Crimea? It was because he really cared about the Crimean people and like that they're Russian descent, and he wanted to liberate them from the horrors of living in Ukraine. No, it was because. Sevastopol was a big loss for the Russian Navy. Sevastopol is the largest naval base on the Black Sea, and it's where all of his stranded assets were. So when when that happened and Sevastopol became under Ukraine, you know, under Ukrainian power, they, they took all of the, the technology, the base, and all the assets that were there. So for Putin to grab Crimea, what it does is it, it allows him suddenly to dominate the Black Sea. So he gets a base back that he wanted. He loads it up with SM or with um, S-400 missile batteries. He's built, you know, they put, I think when, when, when he took Crimea, there were two kilos. Now there's nine. You know, they had, they had no destroyers, no fast frigates. Now, now they have 11. So, you know, Russia owns the Black Sea. And um, Mariupol is, is uh, east of of Crimea and Odessa is west. And 90% of the shipping traffic in Ukraine goes between Odessa and Mariupol. Well, if you want to take Nova Russia back, you know, you had a pretty easy way to do it now. You, you own Crimea right in between them. So we just start playing around with, okay, the little green men, they show up in Mariupol. How do they do it? They start with civil unrest. Okay, then then there's civil unrest. There's Russian people being being injured. So now we need peacekeepers to come in. So the Russian peacekeepers come in. Who are they? Oh, those are the, those are the Russian soldiers. Okay. How would the U S respond? You know, they see the writing on the wall. And this book was really, really fun for us because we looked back at, okay, you know, what's happened in the black sea and the USS Donald Cook, we, we saw that the Donald Cook's been in the black sea a couple of times. They've been harassed by MIGs every time they go in there, they've been harassed by MIGs and, in the Baltic when they're up there too. You know, Turkey controls how many boats, how many U.S. warships can be in there. They only allow one at a time. So we said, all right, this will be really, really fun. We want to put in this scenario where Russia wants to reclaim uh, Nova Russia, take southern Ukraine, and we're going to stick a destroyer in the Black Sea. And they're the only combatant there that can do anything about it. And we'll throw our guys in, uh, in, in Ukraine, do special operations. So for us, this is, this is our biggest novel ever. We sort of tried to elevate it to the level of like a, a Tom Clancy where we had global geopolitics. We had multiple branches of the Navy. We had F-22 scenes and F-35s and the Marine Corps and you know, lots and lots of moving pieces. So I think, I think we pulled it off. Um, the readers seemed to like it. So the challenge was, you know, that's all fun, but this, it's still a Dempsey book, right? So yeah. you, we wanted to do all these, you know, big white side, global stakes, World War III stuff. It required us in the two books leading up to it to destabilize the relationship between Turkey and the United States, right? Like that would be crucial. If we still have great relationship with Turkey, well, then that changes the scenario a lot. And so we sort of set it up that way. But in the end, that it's got to be about it, right? There's got to be the covert though, operations. There's got to be that stuff. You've got to have Dempsey and his team down and dirty. And so we tried to use the big global conflict as a backdrop right. so that we can still do the covert operations and, you know, them doing their thing and fighting against their 
counterparts in Russia. And in the end, no one knows that stuff went on. But it was really fun to, to it was a lot more research than we've had to do in the past, but it was a lot of fun. You, you both have like this wealth of information from personal experience, from your military backgrounds and from all your research and things like that. How often do you, do you guys reach out to people, special operations, intelligence, you know, people like, hey, if this were the scenario, how would you deal with this or what would happen? All the time. So, you know, for one thing, we both maintain relationships with people that we've worked with in the past. Um, you know, I was doing consulting work with some of the communities I worked with up until just, you know, even just two years ago. So we have a lot of good friends that we can reach out to and say, dude, what if? But for this one, we had to go a step further, which was, you know, because neither one of us has ever worked in surface warfare. And we had this whole surface warfare component to this. Um, and I don't think we could have written it five years ago because now we've we've written enough and people know us enough that we could reach out and say hey you know brian reached out to a buddy and he knew a guy at the pentagon he said you know anybody that has been on a you know one of this this class of boat and um we actually he hasn't given us permission to use his name so we won't but we actually had an, the opportunity to have a very long conversation with uh someone who's been the skipper of uh of that class of boat uh, ship. I'm sorry, boats or subs, but um, he was amazing. And he even went as far as saying, look, once you're done with it, send it to me, let me look at it and I'll tweak it for you and tell you what doesn't and doesn't work. And it wasn't that, you know, you can get online and you can look and see how a system works and you can describe it, but you need a guy that's been there to say, well, I would never say that, or I would never right. do it that way. You know what I mean? And so having the opportunity to interact with a new community of people was way more exciting than what you're talking about. Like, you know, we, I've yeah. still got guys that are on active duty that are in NSW and I can call those guys anytime. And that's awesome. But being able to make new connections, that was really fun. That yeah. was really cool. In I this bet. And it's interesting how factual you want it to be because even if the people who are reading your books are not veterans, a lot of them know this stuff. Like they, they know it um, better than the veterans. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like for, for example, um, you know, when we were writing the, all, all those Arlie Burke scenes, you know, one of the things that uh, just was sort of over my head you know, is, is, uh, is fuel. You know, I, and I remember uh, this, this, this guy who, who Jeff mentioned, you know, he's a he's a he's a full bird captain now, but he was he was a skipper or, or a captain of Arleigh Burke, and he said, you know, you have them drive around at flank. He's like, um, you know, I, I, I'd be worried about fuel. Well, as a submarine guy, you know, like we had an unlimited gas tank, man. I had twenty years, so I could drive around at flank for ten years if I want to, and I'm fine. Right. You know, but but that that Arleigh Burke, he's got to be thinking strategically. If I'm flanking. To a location in the Black Sea, how long can I maintain this bell before I have to have enough gas to come back? I'm not going to be doing an unrip. Am I going to be pulling into port somewhere to get gas? I mean, what sort of mission do you want me to execute? You know, that, that, was, that was fascinating. And, and we had written a scene where we wanted to do helo recovery, and he, was, he needed to haul ass up, up north to uh, do what he needed to do. And we put in this incident where there was a a close call and a, a Russian, a Russian MIG or actually a Russian Sukhoi went down and the, uh, the pilot ejected. And so they were doing, um, search and rescue operations to pull this guy out of the water. And, and this, um, this captain came back and he said, he said, you have the, uh, MH 60 landing at when they're flanking. 
And I said, what's the problem with that? He's like, well, you got quite a squat on, you know, anything over, you know, standard bell. And uh, that's dangerous. You know, we wouldn't, I wouldn't want to recover a helo at that speed, you know, and those little details are just great things that, okay, well now you, it changes the strategic calculus of the captain too. Well, sh okay. So now I got to slow down. I can't turn. Okay. So if somebody, let's say there's a Russian kilo down there who's following me and has a firing solution on me, right. I can't conduct torpedo evasion maneuvers because I'm doing helo recovery or helo takeoffs. Right. It's right. a big risk, right? Right. You're so, sitting duck when you're driving in a straight line at a solid, at a, at a, at a single bell. So do those types, uh, does that type of input, are there times when you just ignore the input because it complicates things too much? Or does, does it always like take hold and change the story and change what you guys are doing? Or at least change that, that segment? I mean, you got to split the middle sometimes. Like, you know, you have to let you, we, all of us on, on this, uh, on this podcast are, are military guys. And we know that in real life, there's hours and hours and hours of sheer boredom. No one wants to read yeah. that book, right? right? And so um, there's realism and, there's, and then there's just possible. And so you, you got to find that balance between realism and possible so that you can make an entertaining book, I think would be the short answer. So the answer is we try never to go outrageous, yeah. but sometimes you got to take a little license and say, look, you got to move the story forward and, and uh, you're going to have to compromise now and again. But right. we do pride ourselves in trying to make our books believable to where people from the communities would go. Yeah, that, that, well, that's what I would do. That's and honestly the best war stories. I mean, uh, through history and whatnot, and the medal of honor winners are usually what's possible, but not what, not what's realistic. Right. Right. Well, and, and what we did in this case is we talked about it and we said it, let's just work this into the story because these real life constraints create a lot of tension and stress for the, for the captain. So we, we put those into the narrative. He's having discussions with his Cobb and with his XO about, well, what do we do? You know, should, should we recover the helo? Do we keep the helo up? Do we send the helo to, a, uh, do we lose our helo, which is conducting, you know, can drop sonar buoys, has a dipping sonar. It's our only potential way to keep track of these Russian submarines. Do I send it over to Constanta to get refueled or do I bring, do I slow down driving a straight line to recover this bird so I can fuel it up? And so that adds a lot of stress for this, for the character. And I think you feel that as the reader that, Oh man, what's he going to do? And of course we, we make him cliffhangers, you know, you, mm -hmm. you, the chapter ends, he's not sure what he's going to want to do. And you want to turn, you want to get back to the, the Donald cook to see, you know, how's he going to work his way out of this problem? So it, it, as we've matured as writers, what we find is when we have these problems, invariably the solution is we talk to each other and we're like, oh, let, let's not try to hide it. Let's not try to eliminate it. Let's just put it straight into the story and the characters have to figure out how to deal with it. Yeah. So it's almost that not, not, not only do the, the real world situations add complexity that you have to deal with, but they also add a tension and a drama that you don't have to fabricate. Correct. Right. Yeah, that's right. You know, uh, another fun thing about this, um, these Donald Cook scenes is, you know, this, the Aegis um, system, it has a fully automatic mode. You know, that, that radar system, as, as uh, you know, our, our friend at the Pentagon said, 
it can detect a bumblebee flying at 200 nautical miles away, right? You know, so like this thing is incredible. Can, it can track 999 simultaneous contacts. And, you know, one of the things that a SEAL has to think about is, do I put this system in automatic or do I put it in manual? Because, you know, if you've got a Russian fast frigate and they have a firing solution on you and they have an anti-ship missile, by the time you can put together a firing solution to fire an SM-3 to shoot down their missile that's incoming, it's too late. So, you know, what, what this gentleman told me is, you have you have to choose, you know. Do you risk your crew's life and put the system in manual, or do you put it automatic and know you're going to be safe? But now maybe he just sees that incoming MIG who's trying to intimidate you, right? Miscategorizes it as an incoming missile and blows it out of the sky, and you just started World War Three. So Jeff and I like we we spent a lot of time concentrating how do we how do we incorporate that? What what do we do with that? And again, we just defaulted back to. Make the captain have to deal with the same decision he would in real life. That's fascinating. Yeah, because that's like one of those really interesting, like moral and ethical decisions that you have to make. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. it really is. I mean, honestly, on a much lower level, it's like the guy on the corner with a cell phone while your convoy is rolling by. Like, what's your call? You know, is the guy a bad guy and going to blow up your convoy? Is, is he triggering something or is he just some moke hanging out with, with a cell phone? It's the exact same thing. It's, I mean, the scale, the only thing different is the scale, right? But it's exact from a moral standpoint, that's the exact same equation. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. It, it, was, it was really ironic because we picked the Donald Cook, for example, simply because Donald Cook had actually been in the Black Sea and it's over there in that group. But what's interesting is, you know, you start looking into the histories and it almost feels sometimes like there is poetry in real life because the, the namesake for the Donald Cook was a Marine who was a Congressional Medal of Honor winner who got his con Congressional Medal of Honor because he rescued um, his fellows in impossible situations. And the plot that we had written was that the Donald Cook was going to have to go in to rescue this um, LST and a group of Marines that were trapped in Odessa. And it wasn't until we started digging into the research that we found out how strange, you know, that the namesake for this book is did what we're talking about doing, you know. Yeah. And so we again we worked that into the plot where the the CEO of the Donald, the fictional CEO of the Donald Cook said, you know, we're not gonna leave any you know, there there's some disagreement, you know, why are we doing this? Should we go do this? That's not our ship. Why do we have to go up there and escort those guys out? And it sort of falls back on the naval special warfare, you know, ethos too of no man left behind. So even you can apply that to warships too. You know, one ship's going to to rescue and escort out a, another ship that, that can't defend itself. You're not leaving behind an entire crew right. in that case. Right. You know, in addition to like how well you guys write characters and the depth that you give your characters, you the moral ambiguity, you know, and I don't mean people being morally ambiguous, but situations, you know, do I do this? Even in the first book in tier one, uh, the girl, the contact in Germany, right? Like mm -hmm. leaving what what was to be done with her? Is she just, uh, you know, do we save her or is she just kind of a casualty of war type of thing? 
how do you guys work with that when you're when you're figuring out these situations? I think that I think that um, that's the key to writing novels nowadays, right? It's not it's not black and white, and you know everybody on this on this Zoom is or on this uh, podcast has been there. There is moral ambiguity. There is no right answer more often than you'd like to admit. You know whether it's just you know a show of force patrol through. Kasim or it's a warship in the Black Sea, there are decisions that have to be made that have no good answer. Mm -hmm. And um, those decisions are made by normal mortal men who live with the consequences, oftentimes psychologically for the rest of their lives. And I think you do a disservice if you write these, you know, red cape wearing superheroes, black and white, you know, guy stroking the cat, Dr. Evil. <laughs> right. I mean, that's, that's fun, but it's, it, you're, you're cheating your reader and you're cheating yourself as a writer out of the experience of the gritty reality of it's not clean. It's not clean. It's never clean. There's a lot of casualties of war, innocent bystanders on both sides that are the victims of choices in the gray. Right. And I think that in, in, you know, Jack, you, you guys know, both know, you know, as Rangers, it's SF guy. That's a lot of your life is spent in the gray. It's just not like the old days when the guys with the red coats and the muskets and the guys that came and they all lined up and they shot each other until enough of them was dead that someone ran away. You know who the bad guys are. You know who the good guys are. That's not the world we live in. It's not the world we live in in small unit operations, but it's also not the world we live in in global operations anymore. There's going to be people hurt real people with families. And um, I think if you don't put that in, then you're not going to ever have a character that's interesting. I mean, you know, we all like to go watch the movie with the badass guy that does the superhero stuff for two hours, but it, next day you don't remember that guy. Right. But a guy like Dempsey, he'll haunt you because he's mm -hmm. so haunted by that moral ambiguity. Right. He makes that immediate decision. He doesn't look back, but we try to take him to the next level where he it does affect what he does next after that. And he carries it with him. Everybody here on this call is carrying something like that with him. I mean, you know, Jack, I've read your book. I know what you're carrying. And so we're all carrying stuff like that. And if we don't put that into our writing for our readers, what a disservice. If you've had that experience and you're not sharing it, what a disservice. Yeah. Uh, and from a business standpoint, it makes a hell of a good novel. So Sure. It's, sure. Uh, it's even when you go back in time to, the World War II generation, and those guys were largely lionized um, for a lot of good reasons. You know, they're young men who grew up in the Depression, and they pr basically saved the world from fascism. So there, there are a lot of good reasons to, to admire them. Um, but if you go and you read, like, real accounts of what happened in World War II, it's not exactly the Band of Brothers type of story. I mean, there's some really ugly shit that happened in that war on both sides, and, and there are ambiguities, you know, that you mentioned. Um, but it, as much as we admire that generation and what they did during the war, I mean, there's some really ugly shit that happened. And a lot of it got whitewashed after the war. And, and, and maybe that was okay in that generation. You know what I yeah, mean? We needed yeah. heroes. We needed to, we had to rebuild our economy. We had to do it based on patriotism. You know, maybe that was a better time. I, there, I agree with you, Jack. I'm not trying to paint a picture that our generational warfare is different in that moral ambiguity. It's always been there. It's been there since the very, very beginning. Yeah. Um, 
but it was the hidden secret. And maybe, you know, that made it harder for that generation because they had to carry it in mm -hmm. secret because we didn't talk about moral ambiguity. If you're brought home as a hero, it's hard to sit and talk over coffee about that hard decision you had to make <laughs> right, because right. that's not how people view you. Um, so you're right. This isn't unique to us. It's been around forever, but it certainly makes it a more interesting story if you can bring those aspects mm -hmm. out in the action as well as in the aftermath um, and show these people as real um, and people that have to carry the scars that are inside and outside, just like all of us do. Well, it's interesting because, Brian, I, I think, you know, some Mariners have a, a very specific experience with that because you're completely in the dark. And if you get that flash message that this is going down, launch this, do whatever, you have no information on what's going on outside the world of your submarine with the exception of that communication. Yeah, it's uh, psychologically challenging because... You're launching these tomahawks. You you have a, I mean, they're over the horizon. They go off, and uh, you don't see the. You don't see the impact of what you do. You know what you're doing, but you don't see where they go, and and um, I don't know. That is different. It's different than actually having to to be there, right? To look look your opponent in the eye, your enemy in the eye. There's there's not not a lot of humanity to that, right? Well, it's probably good and bad, right? Like on in some the scale at which you operate, Brian is is got to be psychologically devastating. Collateral damage. Speaking of the title of our book, you know the risk of that tremendous. Whereas you know in a in in some sort of urban combat, these guys are clearly trying to kill you. Like it's a little yeah. it's yeah. a little easier to justify pulling the trigger when you can see that look in that face you see in their eyes like you if you've ever been close enough to someone that's trying to kill you um that look in their eyes that like they would kill you piss on your body and find your family and kill them too it's a lot easier to do what you need to do in that situation than it is to sit in the in the sub and then you're going to go get chow and you're going to be like what the hell did i just do yeah. i mean i think there's there's good and bad to both right i mean yeah it's it's hard to shake the images of things that you've touched and, and felt and seen, but that scale and the impersonal nature of it, I think would be very hard to deal with. Uh, there, I don't know. I've never done I'm it. I'm really but, curious but, now that this has come up, like have there ever been like psychological studies done on submarine crews about this particular subject? Because philosophically, it's very interesting that you mentioned, you're like, you're in a very self, oh, literally a self-contained environment with very few inputs, except those specific messages. And like, like uh, I, I guess my question would be, uh, I mean, you'd have to like sit down and form like a thesis question, uh, you know, this is like a subject for a dissertation or something, but how decisions are made and, and how people process those decisions on a submarine. Yeah, there, are, there is actually psychological uh, testing before you go to sub school. So they want to make sure that you're able to function in that sort of environment. But I don't remember any questions pertaining to this particular topic. I think mm -hmm. it was more about, you know, are you the type of person that can be in confined environment for long periods of time and, you know, you're not claustrophobic, you're not... Uh, it, it, it is not an environment to suffer fools, let me put it that way, okay? Yeah. Because there's, you can't 
let people off. Okay. And there's no getting off. So you, you <laughs> go to war with the, the, your, the crew that you have and you're stuck with them. And so, you know, I think uh, in, in personal conflict, you know, de-escalation is very important. You have to have the type of personality where you don't hold a grudge. Uh, you can de-escalate arguments and the like, because you're going to be living and operating with these dudes for, you go on a deployment for six months, you get in a fight with somebody, you got to live with this dude for another six months and operate with them, you know, and you're stuck. Yeah. And in a very confined space, it's not like a, a destroyer tender where everybody can go to their corners and, you know, only see each other in passing or whatever. There's no personal space at all. Yeah. yeah. yeah you're always rubbing, bumping up against people, you know, uh, there's just, there's just no room at all. You know, you, you get used to this idea. There's a joke, you know, you could tell submariners at a party, uh, because they're all the guys standing all real close together, you know, <laughs> so you're just used to being near people. But um, I think that, I mean, I remember one particular incident that uh, when I was going to go on watch, I was going on watch to be OD. And I, I remember it sounds so stupid, but I, I had to put on the gladiator music on my, on my, uh, you know, my, my headphones, you know, before I went on watch, because I knew when I was going on watch, I was going to have to do some stuff. And um, so then I, I wanted to psych myself up for it. And then I think you just kind of go into robot mode. And you say, well, I'm going to I do what I have to do, you know, because I got to look out for the people inside this tube. And, um, you know, I'd follow my orders, you know, um, Crimson Tide, I think, as silly as parts of that movie were, it really tackled this issue. And, you know, it's a much bigger stakes to launch a nuke than a tomahawk. There's no, there's no comparison, you know. But I used to think about that a lot, you know. Like, there is a certain relativism in war fighting, And, like, you know, launching a tomahawk is one thing. But could I have launched a nuke? I don't know, man. I don't know if I could have. Just being honest. Yeah. It, it's, it's tough. And you, no matter how many psychological evaluations you do on somebody, you'll never know until that minute. I mean, yeah. I don't know if you guys remember uh, the old movie War Games, but the whole premise starts because one guy, during a drill, one guy couldn't couldn't turn the the key on the nuke. Well, yeah, right? and isn't that like some of the, the the protections on our nuclear arsenal is that some of them some of the glocks on it are technical, but at least one is social, right? That you're trusting that these orders that come to you are legitimate and, and lawful, right? right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's... And I, go ahead, please. Well, I was just going to say, I think in Crimson Tide, they, you know, they did a great job of handling that idea of, okay, the order comes down, but the geopolitical situation above the sea is changing. So you're stuck down there. You only get your flash message traffic. That's all you have. You can't get it. You can't get message traffic when you're submerged. So, you know... You don't know what's happening up there. Right. You know, all you know is the last piece of information that you have. And um, they really, really played, they did a great job of getting into that moral dilemma. What if something has changed? Should, yeah. we, should we still, is this a lawful order? Maybe it was 10 minutes ago. Is it now? Right, right. right. I'm, interestingly enough, you know, talking about World War II and going back and looking at statistics, and I, I think the statistics have been challenged, but... The idea that when soldiers used to train marksmanship on just round silhouettes, uh, how few soldiers were actually willing to engage an enemy target, an enemy you know, soldier, um, 
then going to sort of E-types to more build that, you know, the, the human-shaped targets to build that, just the reflex where it goes beyond the moral decision. That you're, you're just going to smoke up a human being on yeah. reflex, and it is what it is. Yeah, and then I, I remember some of those articles too, David. I've, I've, I've read some of those things too, like the number, the number of people that failed to engage in a normal infantry unit, not in special operations or whatever. It's like, I don't remember the number, but I remember going, good Lord. That's, it was yeah, like, it was, dramatic. Big, it was a big number. It right. wasn't half, but it was like, it was a double digit number. And you're like, wow, is that right? Is that possible? And, and part of that is how you train and desensitize, I suppose. Yeah. But I also think it's, it was, it, you know, that was stuff in uh, world war two in Korea, I think is what you're referring to. Uh-huh. And that was different because I think that there was there was still that aspect of like I'm the soldier for my country and you're the soldier for your country, but we're just soldiers. Like I don't have anything against you personally. Right. I'm mad at your at your dictator and you're mad at my president. But like if not for that, and you hear that all the time in World War II stories. If not for that, we'd be friends. If not right. for that, we could have a drink and fighter pilots who would say, you know, in another world we could be friends. There was none of that in Afghanistan, right? Like these were not people that could have been your friends if not for the war. These, this was an, this is ideological stuff. And so I do think that it is a little easier right. to discharge your weapon right. at someone who ideologically their goal is that you cease to exist, you, your children, and all your progeny from the planet. Well, and not only your a little easier, a little easier than not, the, not only your kids and your family, but if they just burnt down a school full of girls, there's not right. a whole lot of you know uh, compassion in your heart for them. Yeah, right. And I'm not, and I'm not trying to take anything away. You know, if you've read much of um, Grossman's work, you know, on killing and stuff like that, I'm not trying to minimize the psychological impact of taking a human life. And the psychological impact of being in a situation where someone wants to take your life. He was written some brilliant stuff uh, on that on that topic, and um, I'm not trivializing that based on this modern this modern war. But it does have to be, you know. And I'm no psychologist. Yeah. Got to be easier, right? I mean, I, I have to imagine that the toll psychologically in that situation is not the same as uh in in another life we'd be friends yeah i agree too yeah and i mean i think that and looking at like a lot of soldiers during world war ii i don't think they were really aware of the atrocities that were going on you know uh in the concentration camps things like that i don't i don't know if that was widely known they were just they were fighting a fascist who's trying to sweep across europe and you're right it's that in a way, you sort of have to demonize the enemy to be able to to be able to do that job. I think, or, uh, uh, but yeah, and, and we hear these vignettes, these stories about the Germans and the Americans, like during a Christmas day or during a holiday, you know, and and sort of oh, this yeah, yeah. right, this sort of coming together. Hey, we're calling off the war for a day. That right. doesn't happen in Afghanistan or Iraq or you know Somalia or some of these other places because there's no com- there's no common ground right. right there's it's they're just they're so ideologically opposed that there's just not a lot of common ground. So well, psycho- if you if you if you look right now what, you, what 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 I've noticed there's been a number of articles just especially in the last uh, three to four months about you know autonomous warfare you know drones having the ability, you know, do, do they have the, 
kill decision. Where does the kill decision take place? And um, you know, we're, you know, like a lot of these things, it creeps. You know, it, it creeps. So at first, it's okay. Well, we're, the, the kill decision is always going to be uh, with the with the operator. Uh, but now we have a new technology. I was reading something about um, the other day about how um, I wish I could remember the name of the system. But, but basically, you can have a drone. It can be you know forward deployed, and even during the uh, during the strike, so the payload can launch. But the the AI on the drone, if it if it decides that it's needs to switch to a different HVT. So it's targeted HVT-1, or what you thought was HVT-1. In mid-flight, they now have a technology where the AI can, can change and, and, and divert the payload to hit a different target. And, and that is done without you know, a human being involved in that loop. So does the, does the AI launch the payload, or when the operator launches the payload, that the AI switches the target. Yes, the second. But I feel like this is creep, right? This is how it happened. So it's like, well, we would never, the kill decision is made by a human, but, you know, we're going to, in case there's this scenario where the HP2, we fired at the wrong person, it, the AI can decide. This is the baby step where we start to get people comfortable with the idea that AI can make kill decisions. And I think you're going to start seeing more and more of that uh, discourse, but also uh, as we get into this environment where it's algorithmic warfare, where things are happening at speeds that we cannot compete, the enemy is conducting operations at calculations at speeds where we have to do tit for tat. It might be inevitable, right? And so this is this is fascinating topic, I think, to to delve into. Brian, drones drones are the the the, the tip of the spear. It Look, it, it's 930, and I know that uh, – I, I don't know how long you guys can stay. Um, I mean, we would love to explore drones and algorithmic warfare. I would really love to, but we're on your schedule, whatever's good for you guys. Uh, episode – our third time back. Third time's a charm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. It is a neat topic, though, isn't it? It's like – it's that's the that's like talk about falling through the looking glass. Oh, it's fascinating. I mean, that's where it gets scary. And it's how Skynet starts. Right. Yeah. Exactly. This. I didn't want to be the first one to say it. Thank you, David. I'll always be the geek. I mean, always. So. <laughs> there, uh, there's a, a little bit more just really quick to, to talk about. I was very interested when I went through the Space Force's uh, first doctrine book, doctrine manual that they released. And they talk about the desire to maintain space supremacy and there is even, I'm looking through it right here, the ability to legally transcend the most remote and protected national boundaries provides a unique opportunity to enable lethal and non-lethal effects against terrestrial targets. And this is, this is in their published doctrine, you know, open source information. So, I mean, they're putting it out there. They're telling you what's coming. Uh, they're not even hiding it. Right. Yeah. And is that, you know, that's part of that hypersonic weapon type of technology right where you could launch they a did not say that or... specifically so i don't know if it's uh kinetics you know rods from god or, or what it is that they were referencing there they don't they don't talk about the specifics of uh you know modern day star wars they also said non-lethal what kind of what can you deliver from space that would be non-lethal like a big maybe, maybe electronic warfare oh yeah anyway 
Well, guys, uh, we really appreciate you joining us for the show this evening. Uh, coming up on the next episode, uh, next Friday, is going to be Jason Bailey. He's a Army Special Mission Unit operator. I don't think he'll let me say what unit he belonged to. Um, he was a sergeant major, really good guy. He will be on next Friday. Uh, otherwise, please like, share, and subscribe uh, this video to this video and this channel. Uh, make sure you hit the bell icon so that you get notified whenever we go live next time. And if you're interested in supporting the show and getting access to the bonus segments that we do, uh, there's a link to our Patreon down in the description. You will also find a link uh, to find these guys' books. Um, it's down there. Let me just see what, uh, what... What is your guys' website? Go ahead and let us know where we can find you on the internet. We're on, it's really easy. It's andrews-wilson.com. www.andrews-wilson.com. That's our website, and all the links you need are there for all the series we write. And also, if you guys have Amazon Prime, um, you guys get paid when people read on Amazon Prime. Your books are free on Amazon Prime, right? Uh, so if you have Amazon Prime, I, I have to say that I am not a fan generally of military uh, thrillers. It's just not my thing. But the, 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 your books were amazing, and I really thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed them. I, the characters are so deep. Uh, the, the action sequences are, are perfect. Uh, I, I can't recommend your books highly enough. So, thanks. Dave. Thank you. Uh, yeah, let me just say one thing. You know, one cool other feature is if you're an audiobook junkie or you commute and you don't have time to read but you have time to listen, uh, one great feature that is available on all of our books is they're on Audible, so you can get them there. But you can also use the Whisper Sync feature for a dollar ninety nine. You can add narration to any of these uh, free Kindle books. So. You can listen to it. We have a great professional narrator, one of the best in the business, Ray Porter. So please check out uh, the audio version of the books. Yeah. And we're looking forward to your, for your next books, your uh, military thriller, uh, uh, Supernatural, uh, yeah. if, if that's what I can say. But uh, those sound fun, too. You guys, looking forward to it. Thanks. Good to hear. Thanks, you guys. It's always a great time. Yeah. Take care. And uh, I look forward to doing episode three with uh, you guys. Thanks, Anytime, everybody. man. Anytime. Thanks, guys. All right. Take care. We'll see everyone next week. All right. All right. We are out, guys. Sorry. That it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.